You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John chapter 14, we're going to read together verses 12 through 14. We're going to be studying verses 12 through 14. We will read together to start verses 8 through 15 of John 14. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, I have been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Let us pray together before we begin. Our God, we come now to your word, and it is uh, the desire of the hearts of all your people that we might be fed from your word, that we might understand your word, and in turn love and obey your word. We thank you that you have given to us a clear revelation of yourself, and and we pray that our time here together today may not be spent in vain, but that you would send your spirit to be our guide and our comforter and our teacher today. We pray, Spirit of God, that you might instruct us in the truth of your word, that we may see and behold Christ and, and glorify him. And in glorifying Him, glorify the Father as well. Thank you that this is your will for us, and we pray that it might be so in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, We are in John chapter 14. This is what we call the upper room or the farewell discourse. And uh, we have been looking at these final instructions that Jesus is giving to His disciples. They are filled with uh, some comforts and some encouragements to fearful and worrying disciples. And we saw last week that Philip was worried that he might not... uh, be able to see the Father. He was worried that, and, and anxious and thinking that maybe if he saw a revelation of the Father like he got in the Old Testament, that that might calm his fears and, and sort of uh, go a long ways toward calming his anxieties. And Jesus said to him, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. And Jesus is strengthening his disciples by reminding them that as he has claimed throughout his earthly ministry and his time with them, that to look upon him is to look upon and see the Father. Not because they are the same person, but remember because they are the same God. And that in the Son is the fullest revelation of the Father that we could ever hope to see. Because in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. So to look upon Christ is to see everything of the nature and the essence and the substance of God that can be seen by by human eyes, by mortal men. And that should serve to encourage the disciples. And now there are implications for that. And we come now to verses 12 through 14. That's the text we're going to be looking at this morning verses 12 through 14, and we see in verse 12 that Jesus is is going to give two more promises in this text to his disciples. In verse 12, a promise of power, and in verse 13 and 14, a promise of provision. A promise of power and then a promise of provision. Before we break down each of those two separate promises, I do want to make a couple of observations of the verses as a whole in their context. I want you to notice, first of all, that verses 12 and 14, how they are connected to the surrounding context. Uh, one connection is, 
is in reference to what we had just explained about Jesus being of one substance with the Father and the nature of His deity. Simply put, if Jesus Christ is God in human flesh, that has certain implications for our ministries, for the mission of the church in this world, and most certainly for prayer, does it not? Which is why after describing to His, to his disciples that to look upon Him is to look upon the Father, He immediately begins to, some teaching on prayer and His provision. A second connection to the context is Jesus has been telling them for this whole evening that He is leaving them. And now after describing to them again that He is leaving them, He reminds them of what He has promised to provide for them and to do through them in the meantime. Keeping in mind that I am leaving, He says, I want you to understand that greater works than what I have done, you will do. And further, anything that you ask Me, I will do for you. These are promises for His disciples in the meantime, while he is leaving. A second connection to the context is both the mention of belief in verse 12, he who believes in me, in verse 11, he told him, you believe in me, you need to believe also uh, in the works, believe in the works that I do. Uh, he has told them back in chapter 14, verse 1, if you believe in me, believe also in the Father. So there is this context, the connection with the context of believing, and also the mention of works. The works that I do, these are the Father's works, Jesus says, and then he begins to describe the works that the disciples would eventually do. So that's sort of the connection to the context. And there is, of course, the connection with what follows the context with the mention of the Holy Spirit and the teaching of the Holy Spirit, which we're going to get to next week. A second observation I want you to notice about these verses is there are some challenging things here to understand. We've got to be honest about that. Jesus says, He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than I have done, he will do. What does Jesus mean by that? What are the greater works? In what way do those who follow after Christ do greater works than he did? And there's a second challenge, and it's in verses 13 and 14. Whatever you ask me in my name, I will do. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Does Jesus really mean whatever? Does Jesus really mean anything? How are we to understand that? That sounds like a a blank check to ask the Lord for anything that my sinful heart desires, and He is obligated to do it so long as I ask Him in the name of Jesus. So there's some challenges here that we have to work through. Unfortunately, there's no easy verse in all of the three that we have for this morning. There, There's challenging issues in interpreting all of this text. And a third observation that I want you to notice is that even though these are, there are challenging words here, there are clarifying and qualifying sentences in the text as well. And I want you to notice those. Verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me. That's one qualifier. These promises are to the one who believes in him. There's a second qualifying phrase. The works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. That's the second qualifier. There's a third qualifying or limiting phrase, and that is in verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. That's a, that's a limiting factor here. And then the fourth one is repeated twice in verses 13 and 14. Whatever you ask in my name. It's for the one who believes. It is so that the Father may be glorified through the Son. It is because Jesus goes to the Father, and it is in His name. All four of those phrases, and we'll deal with each one as we come to them as we go through the text, but each of those four phrases limits or qualifies or explains the difficult aspects of the text. So, first of all, we have here the promise of power. Let's begin in verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, 
The works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. The truly, truly is a way of introducing something that is very solemn and serious. Uh, it was sort of a formula or a way of, of Jesus spoke, and we've seen it throughout the Gospel of John, where if Jesus is wanting to say something that is very important, and he wants to say our modern equivalent of listen up, because this is significant, he begins the statement with that. Truly, truly, verily, verily, amen, amen, depending on your translation, I say unto you. So what is about to follow is very serious. Now keep in mind their hearts are disturbed, they're anxious, they're despondent in some ways. Thomas and the disciple and the rest of the disciples and Philip and Peter, uh, they have heard Jesus say that he is leaving and now he is zeroing in on something that should be of tremendous comfort and encouragement to them. Truly, truly, I say unto you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, greater he will do and greater works than these he will also do because I go to the Father. Now, what are these greater works? What type of works did Jesus do? Did He teach? Well, He did. Did He preach the Gospel? Call men to repentance? He did that. But what did He also do? He also healed the sick. He raised the dead. He walked on water. He multiplied bread and fish. He healed blind men. He healed crippled men. He raised Lazarus from the dead. What type of works is Jesus talking about when He says, the works that I do, the one who believes in me, he will do, and greater works. In what way do you and I do greater works than Jesus did? Well, let's work our way through some interpretive possibilities. There are three possibilities. Number one, and you know how this works. I give you the two that are baloney first, right? And then I give you the one that's my closer. The very last one is the one that I say, this is where we're at. Okay, so here's the first baloney option, if you will. But I have to say it as if it's serious, because there are people who believe this. There are people who believe that this is indeed proof that we as believers, you and I, that we ought to be doing the same works that Jesus did and even greater miracles today. So if Jesus healed the sick, we ought to be doing the same. If Jesus raised the dead, we should be doing the same. Multiplying bread and fishes, uh, lengthening legs, making blind men see. These are the types of works that all believers should be doing today. And there is a whole branch of Christianity. You, you know who they are. New Apostolic Reformation. Uh, the charismatic movement, uh, broadly speaking, you don't have to actually go to the fringes of the charismatic movement to find people who will argue that indeed this passage teaches you and I should be doing miracles on the scale and the scope so as to dwarf what Jesus did while he was here in the flesh. You don't have to go to the fringes of charismaticism to find people who will argue that. But is that what Jesus is describing here? Is he indeed saying that all of us believers should be doing those type of miracles? After all, it is to the one who believes in him will do greater works than he does. And you can actually find online videos, audio, of I listened to one of them this last week, of charismatic leaders making that very argument and saying that we ought to be doing these same miracles. Is that what Jesus is saying? Let me offer it, let me give you a few problems with that, as if you can't already pick out what the problems are. The first problem is that those who make the claim that they're healing the sick and they're raising the dead, they're not themselves healing the sick and raising the dead. They're not. They don't do it. They're charlatans who do cheap parlor tricks for the sake of duping the, the desperate. They don't heal the sick and they don't raise the dead. In an era of where high-definition video cameras are ubiquitous, we carry them with us everywhere we go. There are probably a 100 high-definition video cameras in this room right now on in, in by way of your cell phone. Those resurrections that they claim that they're doing and the healings that they claim that they're doing, they somehow manage to escape video evidence every single time that they are done. These same people who claim the ability to do this and that we should be doing this, themselves they do not do it. You will not find them near a hospital. 
You will not find them near a funeral home, ever. They don't go there because they don't have the ability to do this. Second of all, miracles were given for the purpose of authenticating the messengers in the New Testament. That is, the apostles. The apostles had the ability to do the same type of miracles that Jesus did, though not on the same scale of miracles. They had the ability to do the same type of miracles because their miracles authenticated their message. Uh, they were, God did bear them witness with signs and wonders through the miracles that they did, giving God's stamp of approval to their message. And that's how Paul argues, actually, in Acts chapter 15, before the Jerusalem Council, pointing to the miracles that he did as authenticating the gospel that he preached. Now I ask you this, would God authenticate the heretical teachings of those who claim the ability to do signs and wonders, miracles? Would God authenticate that? Because the very same people who will claim that they can heal the sick and raise the dead, they twist Scripture and pervert the Word of God and distort the text of the Bible in ways that are just unimaginable. They utter some of the most spine-chilling blasphemies you will ever hear uttered. So then I ask you this, would God authenticate a lie, blasphemy, and heresy? He would not, because they don't do it. But miracles are given for the purpose of authenticating the message. Do we need to have the message authenticated in our day today? No, we do not. A third problem with the notion that these are to be done by all Christians is that the apostles never in the New Testament ever taught or expected that these miracles would be done by those who followed them or even those who were not them in the New Testament. In other words, non-apostles. You never see Peter, John, or James, or Paul ever conducting a seminar or workshop saying, okay, here's how we do miracles. Never giving instructions on how to perform miracles. Never giving a detailed outline of this is what to do, this is what to expect, this is how to create the right environment. They never did this. There's no indication anywhere in the New Testament that the apostles ever expected miracles to be done by anybody other than an apostle and anybody after them. So I don't believe that that's what this passage is teaching. Because they certainly didn't understand Jesus to be teaching that. And a fourth problem is, if miracles were to be done by every Christian all the time, everywhere, would miracles still be miracles? Miracles are by definition what? Extraordinary. If everybody's doing miracles, are miracles still extraordinary? They're not. Look, if everybody is special, nobody is special. If everybody's a winner, nobody's a winner. You got it. If everybody does miracles, are they still miracles? No, they're now ordinary and commonplace. And yet we recognize what a miracle is. So that's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying that every Christian would be able to perform extraordinary miracles beyond the type that he did. There's a second possibility. And this is, has some validity, though I'm not sold with this one. So I'm moving, as it were, from the really baloney through real meats into what I think is substance. Okay, So here's this second possibility. That this promise is limited to only the apostles. And there's some people who would argue this. That really the, the promise here is given to the eleven, just the apostles, and that what Jesus has in mind is the miracles that the apostles performed after he was gone, which we read about in the book of Acts. That I think is workable. I don't think, there's a couple issues with that. Number one, the, the promise you will notice in the text does not seem to be limited just to apostles. It's actually very generic. He who believes in me. The one. Generic. Not you specifically, apostles, disciples, eleven, but he who believes in me. A very general promise. Second, there is no indication in the New Testament or in history that the apostles actually did the type of miracles that Jesus would be describing here by that interpretation. In other words, if what Jesus is saying is to the apostles, when I leave, you, the eleven, 
will do greater signs, miracles, than I have done. There's no indication in the New Testament that they actually did that. Did the apostles do miraculous signs? They did. They healed the sick. There was a couple people who were raised from the dead. Dorcas in Acts chapter 9. Uh, is it Eutychus? The kid that fell out of the windowsill. Paul raised him. Eutychus. That's the name. Uh, so there are a couple of examples of that, of resurrections. But when you look at the miracles that the apostles did after Jesus left, they are nothing of the number or the scope of miracles that Jesus did. Nobody comes close to matching the miracles that Jesus did. You go to the Old Testament, Moses and Joshua, they performed miracles, but nothing on the scale of what Jesus did. In the, during the times of the prophets, Elijah and Elijah performed miracles, but nothing on the scope of what Jesus did. And the apostles did nothing of the scope that Jesus did. Jesus stands alone. So when you look at the New Testament miracles, you see two things. Number one, God did give to the apostles on authentication of their message and ability to perform signs and wonders in His name. But even when you look at the miracles that they did, they pale in comparison to the miracles that Jesus did. What He did is truly extraordinary. No apostle ever made a man who was four days dead come back from the dead. The apostles didn't do that. So there's nothing that bears out that this was fulfilled by the apostles. So what then is Jesus saying when He says, the works that I do, you will do also, and greater works than these. What would the greater work be? I won't ask you to suggest something, but I will tell you that I think that what Jesus is describing here is the work of ministry, particularly the work of conversion or the converting of souls. That is what he is describing. And keep in mind, the work of conversion, the miracle of conversion, is greater than any sign or wonder that Jesus did. Nothing that Jesus did compares to the miracle of a converted heart. J.C. Ryle explains this, and he says, It could not be truly said that the physical miracles worked by the apostles and the Acts were greater than those worked by Christ. But it is equally certain that after the day of Pentecost, they did far more wonderful works in converting souls than our Lord did. Now, that's not intended to disparage the ministry of Jesus. But remember that there was no sermon that Jesus ever preached where 3,000 people got saved. Not like Peter on the day of Pentecost. Peter preached one sermon and 3,000 people got saved. When Jesus preached in John 6, 5,000 people left. They abandoned Him. The work of converting and the ministry of the converting of souls and the spread of the Gospel went on on a, on a greater scale, far beyond anything Jesus ever did during His earthly life. Now that's not to say that Peter was more gifted, that Peter was more able to work a crowd, or that Peter was better at converting people than Jesus. It is simply to say that we recognize that Jesus in His humanity was limited to one location. And He never traveled outside of Palestine, but the apostles did. And the church now is worldwide, which it never was during the work of Jesus. And thousands of people were converted within months after the resurrection. And the very next phrase tells us what Jesus has in mind. They would do greater works than He did because He goes to the Father. Now what does He mean by that? What, what does this mean that He would go to the Father and that that is the reason that they would do greater works? Well, we look through the Gospel of John and we see something significant about what would happen when Jesus went to the Father. Back in John chapter 7, verse 39, after telling the, the, the people in that crowd about the living water that He would bring and the one who would believe in Him would receive, John makes the note in John chapter 7, verse 39, he says, But this He spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So what would happen when Jesus left and went to the Father and was glorified? What would happen that would enable His followers, those who believed, to do works beyond what He did. The Spirit would be given to the disciples. 
and to believers. I want you to notice that in the very next passage that we have, after these verses we are considering, there is the teaching on the Helper, the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper, that He may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see Him or know Him, but you know Him, because He abides with you and will be in you. Notice the teaching on the Holy Spirit. Immediately after telling them, I'm going to leave, you're going to do greater works because I go to the Father. I will ask the Father, and He will give you the Helper. And this is not the only passage that describes the connection between the giving of the Holy Spirit and Jesus leaving. I want you to look at also at chapter 14, verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Look at chapter 15, verse 26. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will testify about me. Jesus keeps reminding them that the Spirit is coming. And why would the Spirit come? Because He would leave. And He must leave in order for the Spirit to come. Now look at chapter 15, sorry, 16, verse 7. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And He, when He comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in Me, and concerning righteousness because I go to the Father, and you no longer see Me, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you now, but you cannot bear them now. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take of Mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are Mine. Therefore, I said that He takes of Mine and will disclose it to you. So what is the role of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit would come after Jesus went to be with the Father. And notice what He says in verse 7. It is to your advantage that I go away. How can you say it is to our advantage that you leave? Because if I do not leave, the Spirit will not come. What is necessary to do greater works than Jesus did? The presence of the Holy Spirit. Because now, listen, Jesus does His work in every single believer as the Spirit resides in us and does the works of Christ through His church. So now, because the Spirit has come, the scope of the Gospel and the reach of the Gospel and the spread of the Word of God is greater than it was even in the days of Jesus of Nazareth. In that way, we do greater works now than He did then. Not greater miracles. I don't think this was being described as miracles. But the work of converting souls. That has gone on for the last 2,000 years to a greater degree than it did while He was here in His earthly flesh. Because He is with the Father and the Spirit of God is now here with His church. Does that make sense? Greater works than these He will do also because I go to the Father. Keep in mind that the work of converting a sinner, the work of conversion, regeneration, is a greater miracle than any miracle you read about in the Bible. Making blind eyes see is nothing for God. Taking somebody who is spiritually blind and dead in their trespasses and sins and a slave to their self and to Satan and to their sin and setting them free and regenerating them and giving them new life and raising them up in Christ that is the greatest miracle in all of the Bible, the work of conversion. The greatest miracle. Now you have a hard time seeing that if you think that the only problem that a sinner has is just these little sick in his sin, and all you have to do is sort of push the right felt need and kind of uh, do what you can to create the right environment so that he makes the right decision and sort of steps past the gate. If that's your view of fallen man, then the work of conversion miracle is no great thing at all. Anybody can do that. Rick Warren once said, I can get anybody to come to Christ as long as I know what their, their most basic felt need is. 
In other words, you just push the right button and you can get them into the kingdom. All you have to know is the right button to push. If that's your view of man, then the work of conversion is no great miracle. But if you believe that man is dead in his trespasses and sins, and that he is bound in his sin, bound in his iniquity, and utterly dead without any spiritual life or light in him whatsoever, to change that condition, that's far greater than making a blind man see. That's far greater than raising Lazarus to life. It's the greatest miracle of all. Well, that's the power of promise. And second, I want you to notice the power of his, the promise. The power of promise. That sounded like Joel Osteen right there. <laughs> that is the promise of power. Now I want you to, you gotta get the words in the right order, because the difference between a heretic and a good teacher is the order of the words. It is, that is the promise of power. Now let's look at the promise of provision in verses 13 and 14. The promise of provision. Verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now that sounds like a blank check, does it not? Whatever my heart desires, whatever I want, whatever my mind can conceive, all I have to do is ask for it, ask for it in the name of Jesus, and it's mine. Because after all, hasn't Jesus promised that He will do whatever I ask? Anything that I ask or desire. Is that what the promise is? To be fair, before we go through this, I want you to know there are other verses in this discourse uttered on the same evening that say similar things or the same thing. And I want you to notice a couple of them. First, look at John chapter 15, verse 7. There's three of them I want you to notice because we're going to be dealing with them as we come to them, working our way through John. John 15, verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. John chapter 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask the Father, I will give you. Uh, in my name, he may, may be given, he may give to you. And then John 16, verse 23. In that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. So there is that promise repeated. Now, does that sound like a blank check to you? If you ask me, whatever, anything you ask, I will give it, ask it in my name, it's yours, said and done. That's what it sounds like, right? And so, if I were part of the name it and claim it crowd, the blab it and grab it society, then that would be some verses that I could get a lot of traction out of, a lot of mileage out of that. We just simply need to ask Jesus for whatever we want, and He will give it. As with the previous passage, there are some qualifying phrases here which sort of limit this and help us to understand what it is that He is describing. But should we be praying like we are some carnival barker in charge of God's storehouse of blessings and we just call out whatever we want. Lord, I need a million dollars. I mean, you say whatever I ask in your name. Oh, i got to ask it in the name of Jesus. That's the magic formula. As if God is begrudging giving us something, but if we ask in Jesus' name, oh, asked it now I'm obligated. That's not the sense of it at all. Should we be asking God for things like that? I need a million dollars. Make it two because i got some bills to pay. And uh, since I'm asking for things like that, I need a new house, a new car. My shoulder's a bit sore. My toe hurts. My team is on the brink of missing the playoff for the first time in four years, so if we could do something about that, that would be really good. And why stop at the playoffs? What I really want is a Super Bowl title. So I want the Super Bowl title, and Uncle Joe has cancer, so do something about that and throw in a million bucks for Uncle Joe as well. Is that how we are supposed to approach God in prayer? No, the thinking Christian has to say, hold on, hold on a second. Hold the phone, Henrietta. That cannot possibly be what Jesus is describing in this passage. That cannot possibly be what he is guaranteeing to the disciples or to all people who believe in him. Well, there are some qualifying phrases in this passage. One of them is mentioned twice. One of them is mentioned twice. In my name. 
What does it mean to ask God something in the name of Christ? That puts a tremendous limitation on it. Now, he is not saying that asking something in his name is the magic formula for getting what we want. As if God is not obligated to give us anything unless we ask it in Christ's name, then it's sort of God is obligated to do it. It's not a a meaningless phrase that we tritely tack on to our prayers, which we do sometimes mindlessly. In Jesus' name, what does it mean to ask something in Jesus' name? It means primarily three things. I think we can kind of sum it up under three headings. It means, first of all, that we come to God in the merits of Christ. When we approach God in prayer, we are approaching Him not on our own merits, not because we have any standing with God, that we deserve a hearing at the Father's throne. Not at all. But to come to Him in Christ's name means that not only do I come to God the Father in salvation in the name of Christ, but I come to Him in prayer in the merits of Christ as well. What is it that gains me access to the throne of grace? It's Christ. It is what He has done and what He continues to do as my mediator at the right hand of the Father. Because of what He has done and what He continues to do even for me this day, even right now, this very moment, because of His work for me, I am able to access the Father's throne and to ask of things in His name. So I come to the Father's throne in the name of Christ. I am coming recognizing I deserve nothing. And I am coming to you, Father, entirely on the merits of somebody else, what somebody else has done, and who someone else is. And it is only because I am accepted in Him that I have access to the Father. Second, it means that when I pray, I pray consistent with the will of God. When I am asking something in Christ's name, I am, I am literally saying, I am requesting this because I believe that Jesus would sanction this request. I am asking this because I believe that this is the will of the Lord Jesus Christ for me. In other words, it doesn't make any sense to ask God for something that you know is against His will. And then to tack on Jesus' name as if that makes God willing. That's not what we're asking. When, when we ask the Lord for something in the name of Christ, we are saying, I believe this to be your will for me in Christ Jesus. And it is because I believe this to be your will that I am asking you to do what you will to do. That is what it means to ask in the name of Christ. Third, when I ask in the name of Christ, it means that I am seeking the things that Christ seeks. What does Christ seek? The glory of the Father. That is what He wants. So when I ask for something in the name of Christ, I'm saying, I'm asking on His merits, I'm asking for what He wants, and I am seeking the thing that He seeks. What does He seek? He seeks the glory and honor of the Father. So that everything that the Son does, He does to glorify the Father, so that the Father may be glorified in the work of the Son. And so when I am seeking the Lord in prayer and asking Him to do something, I'm saying, I want this because Christ wants this. And I want your glory the way the Son wants the glory of the Father. God is not interested in answering our prayers and meeting our every whim because we desire our own ends and our own glory. God is interested in answering and hearing the prayers and glorifying Himself. Now the critic would say that is very selfish of God to seek His own glory. Have you ever heard that? It's very selfish for God to seek His own glory. What is the alternative? The alternative would be for God to seek the glory of someone else. And you know what they call that? That's called idolatry. That's called idolatry. The most amazing thing about the nature and the character of God and His will for His people is that God seeks His own glory because that is the most good for His creatures and for His people. What is it that glorifies God? To take a rebellious sinner 
to draw him to himself, to regenerate him, to save him, to sanctify him, to secure him, to save him everlastingly and and pour out upon him, that sinner, unlimited joy, infinite blessing, infinite pleasure in his house forevermore. The eternal good and the eternal glory of the believing sinner brings more glory to the Father than anything else that he could give to us. That is what glorifies him most. So when you keep in mind that God is seeking his own glory, but what glorifies him most? My eternal joy glorifies him more than anything else he could do. And then suddenly I realize that God seeking his own glory is not selfish. It's actually very selfless because he seeks his own glory by doing good to his people. And so I want God to be glorified. Why? So that his name is lifted up. How does he do that? By saving and sanctifying and securing sinners. That's how God does that. So what is it then that we can pray for? You say if it's in the name of Christ and it's for the glory of the Father, which is the second qualifying phrase there in that passage, it is so that God may be glorified in the Son. If that's what limits my prayers, then all of a sudden I feel like I'm praying in a box. In other words, if God is only going to give me what God wants to give me, and if I can't ask for anything whatsoever I want, then what's the purpose of praying? Why would I pray if I can't ask for anything and have Him guarantee that He's going to give it to me? Jim, you're nothing but a killjoy. I mean, weeks ago you took my mansion from me, told me I just get a room in the Father's house, and today you're telling me that anything doesn't mean anything, and whatever doesn't mean whatever, and that there are limits on my praying. But listen, even when we, we draw the confines of that box which the text draws, we are still encouraged to pray for all of these things, and there's so many things. Think about it. We can pray that the Father would send out laborers into the harvest. We can pray for evangelistic events. And we can pray that God would raise up teachers and preachers and evangelists and that God would endue the preaching of the gospel with power. And that God, having sent out laborers into the harvest, that He would protect them and provide for them and keep them faithful to the gospel. And that the gospel would be clearly communicated and be attended with the Spirit and with power. Those are all things that we can pray for. And guess what? God is delighted to answer those prayers because that is exactly what He desires. He desires for His Word to be accompanied with the Spirit and with power and for the blessing to reside upon His people and upon His church. So there is a lot that we can pray for. Our problem is not that we pray too much. Our problem might be that we pray too little. Our problem might be that we pray for the wrong things, but our problem is certainly not that we pray too much. This, like every other encouragement to prayer in the Scripture, is is designed to encourage us to pray more. That we might ask God for the things that He delights in. Does that mean my toe? Does that mean something regarding my football team? Sometimes our prayers can be awfully shallow and vain, can they not? Sometimes I just got to step back and listen to myself pray, and then I realize, how self-seeking is this? Of all the things that we could be praying about, that we know God has promised to give us. If the works that He is speaking of is the work of conversion and the spread of the gospel and the proclamation of the truth, And that is what he is interested in accomplishing. He has promised the provision that is necessary to accomplish that. And so it delights God and it is appropriate for me to pray, Lord, attend the preaching of your word with power. Give me opportunities to share the gospel. And we might ask this, how did the disciples, the early apostles, how did they interpret this promise? We get some idea from the book of Acts chapter 4. After Peter and John were persecuted for preaching the gospel in the name of Christ, they left that and they went back to the church. And guess what the church prayed? Listen to it. Acts chapter 4, verse 29 and 30. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal. And signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. 
And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. What did they pray for? Give us boldness in standing for the truth and in proclaiming the truth. And guess what God answered? That prayer. Because that delights Him. That prayer delights Him. What does God desire to do? To attend our witness and our testimony with boldness and with power. That's what they prayed. That's how they understood it. That's how God would have answered it because that is exactly what Jesus is saying. Whatever you ask me, ask me for power, I'll give it. Ask me for clarity, I'll give it. Ask me for strength, I will give it. Ask me for supernatural results, I will give it. He delights in those things. Asking me that your team wins the Super Bowl? I say that to my own shame. I don't pray that anymore. But friends, this anymore. I mean, not after like this last week of study. I mean, I haven't prayed that for a long time, just to be clear. It's not just this passage that convicted me on that. But, but let us be serious about what we ought to expect and ask God for when it comes to praying and asking Him to fulfill this promise. The church needs this encouragement today as much as it has ever needed it. That you and I would be bold about the truth and that we would stand for the truth and not compromise and speak boldly and let the chips fall where they may. That's what we need to do. That's what God is delighted in when we do that. And that is what he is encouraging not only for us to do, but also for us to pray that he would do in and through us. Let's bow our heads. Our great God, we thank you for the encouragement in your word always to pray. We confess to you that we do not pray as we ought. We do not ask for the things that we should. Sometimes our, our very prayers and the things that we request and that are priorities to us are just simply embarrassing in the eternal scheme of things. We turn from that. We, we recognize that. We want to pray as you would have us to pray to anticipate your answer to those prayers that you might be glorified in and through us. And so it is our desire that you would grant us opportunities, multiplied opportunities, to share the gospel and to preach the word, to share the, the, the testimony of Scripture, that we might see you grant repentance and faith to unbelieving sinners, that they might believe and that they might turn from darkness to light. May you be glorified in doing that, and may you grant us the opportunities to be instruments used by you to that end that you would be honored in and through your church, both now and forever, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.